Um, one of our one of our projects that we've been doing for a long time as a church is we have been trying to update uh, worship songs to better reflect contemporary culture, to better reflect our attitudes, to better reflect our sentiments, so that they're more understandable. And so we have been working on some of those, and we've got four or five songs that we have decided to update some of the lyrics to, and so that we don't catch you off guard, and so that you're able to... Uh, to see them coming um, and we're going to Jen and I are going to run through a few of those right now for you so if you'd like you can take notes on this um, and write down some of these, <coughs> some of these changes to help to help us as we as we continue with our worship today okay so these are pretty much old standards that we're updating so I'm not going to call out each song as we do it uh, you'll get the picture you'll understand uh, what we're doing as we go along here You'll get the idea. Again, feel free to take notes. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. I will sing of your love on Sundays. When the feeling is gone. Monday Some to Jesus I surrender Some to Him I'll try and give Maybe sometimes love and trust Him in His presence sometimes live Thank you, Janet. 
Uh, and with that almost near perfect introduction of our sermon text today, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. This is from Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of your God that he may be gracious to you with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, oh, what a weariness is this. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who, is who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Lord, we thank you for your word as always. Even that word that uncovers uncomfortable truth, even when you tell it like it is, even when you speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive the chastisement of a father uh, in, in, in rejoicing, in gratefulness, knowing that you are disciplining us for our own good, knowing that you are calling out the sickness so that we might be healed, knowing that you are breaking our bones so that you might set them and heal them stronger than ever before. But ultimately, Lord, we know that you are showing us and pointing us to a greater reality. You are pointing us and showing us the greater sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, our pure and perfect sacrifice and our high priest. And so we pray, Lord, that you would show us those great realities today. Help us to see our sin, but even more help us to see how much you love us in Christ. Illuminate us by your spirit, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so not, not your normal sermon intro here at Res Prez. I couldn't pass it up, though. I, I got to give credit to... Uh, got to give credit... Where are we? 
Where are we? There we go. Got to give credit to Bobby Falconer, First Baptist Orlando, for that medley. Me and Janet, we tweaked it a little bit. I think we made it better. Yeah. But anyways, but so why was that? I mean, why was that funny? Why was that funny? It's funny. You know, it's one of those things that if you didn't laugh, you kind of have to cry, right? It's, things are funny. Anything is funny because it like shows you a new reality in an ironic or, or a way you hadn't considered before. Uh, and so we recognize the truth in a joke in a surprising or ironic way. And, and how many times, how many times have we come here on Sunday and sang the words and spoke the confessions and prayed the prayers, and yet our minds and our hearts are a million miles away? I, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not like, we're all in the boat, right? I'm doing it. I'm doing the Lord's Supper. My mind's a million miles away sometimes. So I know it's true for everybody. Uh, and yet the passage that we just read is not ultimately just about our worship practices in themselves. It has more to do with the attitudes behind them. And it points to kind of the sad uh, and inescapable reality that, that far too often in, in our worship, we put ourselves first and God last. And that's just true. Uh, it's, it's, it's a truth that's as old as the hills. It was as true on the hill of the Garden of Eden as it was in the hill country of Judea, as it is in the hill country of the Appalachians, as it is in our time and place today. We just, as sinners in a fallen world, we do not give God the honor due God. We are not as grateful as we ought to be given what he's done for us. We do not, on a daily basis, recognize what it means for the God of the, the, who created the heavens and the earth to be our Father. Or we don't really give a full understanding and we don't act in accordance with the reality that God is our Lord and everything that that means. Uh, and if it's happening on Sunday morning... We're making it about us on Sunday morning. What might be happening to us throughout the rest of the week? And so we're going to look at that today. Important caveat before we even get into this. I want everybody to understand that this passage and all the others like it are not moral and emotional beatdowns by an angry God who uh, just wants to smash our face in it. He tells it. God tells the truth. God tells it like it is, but he tells it like it is so that he can tell us how it's going to be and what it is like because of Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, our perfect, the true and perfect worshiper, and how he has solved the problem of half-hearted worship for us. So first, the first truth that God lays out to us is that we put God last, often. There's uh, Mike Rowe who uh, does that show Dirty Jobs. You guys know I'm talking about. He has that show Dirty Jobs. So he's in all kind of dangerous you know, situations. He goes into dangerous professions. And his team sat through like hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of, <clears throat> of safety meetings. And yet over the, you know, the first few years, his team just continually got injured on the, on the job, right? Uh, and he, he recalls a couple of incidents in particular, one, he was on a four-foot-tall scaffolding, 
uh, and the safety officer came over and started yelling at him because he wasn't wearing the harness. And yet the harness had a six foot rope connection on it. And when he tried to point that out to the man, the man just starts, kept yelling at him, safety first, safety first. And in other incidents, he was, he was standing in 10 inches of water. <clears throat> the safety officer came over, <clears throat> told him he had to wear the life preserver. And he's trying to explain to him, why does a grown man have to wear a life preserver in 10 inches of water? The safety officer just kept yelling at him, safety first, safety first. Why? Because they had all these rules and procedures written down uh, and they had to follow the rules and procedures, irregardless of how they had got, even if they've gotten really far away from what actual safety was. And so he came up with this principle that because of all people were focusing more on like the abstract rules of safety than on common sense safety itself, what ended up happening was they were putting safety third. And so he wrote a, a whole blog post and started a thing called safety third and really even worse, they were putting safety last. Uh, and so I see that, that pattern, and we can see that in the passage that we just read, and we can see it in our own lives too, right? We, we talk a lot. We got a lot of talk about putting God first, and we've made up all kind of rules to follow that make us feel like we're putting God first. But when it comes down to it, when it actually comes down to the reality, our actions betray our actions betray the reality. So what's happening in this passage? Israel, Israel was supposed to give the very best animals of its flock, unblemished, perfect animals. And they were supposed to bring those to sacrifice to God, right? And instead, what was happening was they were giving the worst animals. Why? Why were they doing that? Well, it's not hard to imagine why they were doing it, but in, 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 in a nutshell, they were taking the blemished animals, the lame animals, the genetically deformed animals, the sick animals, the animals that they couldn't breed, the animals that they couldn't sell, the animals that they couldn't eat, and then taking them to the temple and offering those up for worship, saying to themselves, wow, we can kill two birds with one stone here. I can cull my flock, I can mitigate my profit losses, and I can like worship God all at the same time. Uh, and then, but conversely, when it came time to going to the governor, to the politicians of the day, to addressing the state, whenever they wanted something done, the Israelites would bring like the very best of everything they had as a gift to the politicians, a gift to the governor, right? And so what, it's, what, what the dynamic was that when it came to God, they could care less. But when it came to the governor, when it came to engaging in politics, they went all in. And it's twofold. The issue is twofold. It's not just that they were giving God the warmed up leftovers of their busy life and kind of fitting him into slots where it was convenient for them. They were... Um, they, they were complaining about even having to do that. Did you catch that at the end? They're like, oh, what weariness. What weariness it is for me to give God the warmed up leftovers of my life, even complaining about that. And God is like, and God's response, he's like, man, I wish you would all just go home. It'd be better off if somebody just shut the door and the sacrifices stopped because this is 
This is ridiculous. Uh, and so God says right up front in this passage, it's not the animals, it's the attitude behind the animals. We don't honor God as we should. We don't honor God as our father and everything that means. We don't honor him as Lord. We talk a lot about putting God first. We've made up all kind of rules that make us feel like we're putting God's first for us to follow. But when it comes down to it, in the reality, we put God last. Now, so in the New Testament church, right, we don't have sacrifices anymore. We don't, because of Jesus has come and been the ultimate sacrifice for us, all those animal sacrifices just pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Now that's made. We don't come to church on Sunday morning and, and sacrifice a goat and put it on the, on the, on the altar to, to, as a whole burnt offering. We don't do that anymore. However, the New Testament talks about different kinds of, it uses that same word sacrifice to talk about our worship and how we should worship God, right? Um, the big one, probably the, one of the, probably the most important one or the one um, the one that resonates with me the most is, first, is uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 1 where, where God says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Man, that, I mean, you, we could preach a sermon series on that. On that one verse it's I think the most one of the most loaded verses in the whole Bible because when he says by the mercies of God he's talking about the 11 chapters before that where Paul laid out in like graphic terms that everyone has violated God's law everyone is uh, everyone has dishonored God and in our in, in in our sin we have destroyed the relationship with God that we had uh, and uh, we are um, alienated from God and dead in our sins. And that only the only solution to that was for God to come in the form of Jesus and, and take away our sin by living a perfect life for us, by dying on the cross for our sins. And then and Paul lays all that out so that we're not made right with God by anything that we do or any work that we do. In fact, that's not even possible because of our sin. But everything has been done for us by Jesus. He saved us from the ultimate threat of sin and of death and of hell because of what Jesus has done for us. Those are no longer problems. And, and so he says, because of all that, that Jesus has done for you, now present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And he says, this is our spiritual worship. This is how we worship God. And that is like, admittedly, that's getting harder and harder to do in our current culture. Is it not? Is it not? I mean, everything, every voice outside of the church, every voice outside of God's word screams at us that what you feel is who you are and that your feelings are naturally just and right and good just because you're having them and that it's good and right for you to follow those desires no matter where they lead. And yet the Bible is contradictory to that. It says, no, you're, not every desire that you have is good. Not every desire or feeling that you have uh, 
is going to be a blessing to you. And so, therefore, the way that you give thanks to God, the way that we honor him, the way that we give him thanks for being God and recognize him as our father and everything that he's done for us is by doing and living in a way that is honorable, that honors God, even when that means we have to deny ourselves and our own bodies. Uh, and then Philippians 4.18 says that I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's talking about giving money. Paul was taking in a collection for the church, right? And it, I mean, it's kind of, it's hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine me and Nisa sitting around the kitchen table and stressing out over our budget, trying to figure out how and where we can cut money out of our entertainment and vacation budget so that we can give more to the church. That's really hard for me to imagine. And Hebrews 13 says, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Meaning that, our, you know, it's talking about our, our, the reality of what Jesus has done for us and our inheritance and the new creation is so strong and such a constant, uh, so constantly on the forefront of our mind and our thoughts and our meditations that we just kind of naturally like speak out praises for God, even without meaning, that whenever we speak, whenever we talk, it just naturally praise of God flows out of us. It's hard for me to imagine consistently doing that, consistently doing that. It reminds me of, this is what it reminded me of, I was thinking about this. It reminds me of the difference between an app and an operating system. And everybody wants the Jesus app. We all have super busy lives. We want to like, uh, you know, we want to, you know, we want to, you know, increase uh, our enjoyment of life. We see that Jesus could possibly be a way to do that. So we download the Jesus app uh, and then we use it, you know, to fill in those gaps and we use it to like, you know, bring us some comfort. Uh, we use it to help us to accomplish like, you know, the, all the day in and day out tasks of our everyday busy lives. But Christianity doesn't really look at, at Jesus as an app. It looks at, at more like the Holy Spirit as an operating system that we go through like a data wipe. <laughs> And that we re reinstall this completely new operating system then has different desires. It has different priorities. It begins uh, to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Uh, and to honestly give him to center our life on the truth of the gospel. To center it. What does that mean? It means that everything around, everything of our life like revolves around or orbits around that center. So that when we come to worship on Sunday morning, this isn't, we're not checking a box off. This is literally the high point of our week. We are like coming into God's presence. And he has promised and, and written in black and white for it. Promised that he is going to meet us when we come here. That he's going to, he's going to encourage us. He's going to forgive our sins for the week and let us know that that didn't break the covenant with him. That he's still our God. 
that we still belong to him and that we still have a future in the new kingdom and that uh, our sins aren't counted against us. He frees us of shame, frees us of our guilt, empowers us with his spirit. All that happens on Sunday morning, this should be like the highlight, the center point of our week. But we treat it like a nap. Can I fit it in this Sunday? Maybe, maybe not. And then, you know, we put all our hope and trust and we put all our effort into our earthly pursuits or other things and we walk around wondering why we're restless, irritable, and discontent. Uh, we wonder why all the growth that we experience as a church, if any, is all transfer growth and not people coming to new faith in Jesus. Um, and what's that? Jesus says straight up in John, I'm the... I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you get cut off from the vine, even if you like clip yourself from the vine, you'll wither and you'll die. You can't do anything without me. Harsh reality. We put God third. We put God last. But the second point, second point is that even though we put God last, Jesus puts us first. There's like the joke, almost a proverb of, uh, about the nagging wife where the husband says, look, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. You don't have to keep reminding me every six months. And that's a real, that's a real dynamic in marriage, right? We're, me and Nisa are going through a book called created for connection, right? And it really talks about this dynamic that couples can get into where, you know, the wife starts becoming, uh, you know, feels like the husband is not like caring for her, being present or loving her. And, and she responds, it could be either partner, it could be either partner. She responds by becoming like more angry uh, and more aggressive and like more direct, which causes the husband to feel like unloved and then begin to, you know, back out and become more withdrawn. And then this, these patterns develop and get worse and worse over time. And it, you know, it separates people apart. That's a real dynamic in marriage. It's a real principle in life too, right? We, it's real easy to read the verse that I just read and think that God is saying, look how bad you suck. It's real easy to think that. Uh, but he's not, he's not nagging us. He's, God doesn't pull punches. He pulls out the truth. He says the truth. But he's not nagging us for sure. He is, um, he's pointing out the truth. But then he gives this crazy, surprising solution to the problem. Uh, he, does he say, what does he say? Does he say, try harder and come back next week? No. Does he say, get your stuff together and we can talk? No, he doesn't say any of that. Listen to what he says. This is God's response to Israel's half-hearted, self-consumed worship. He says this, I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God, he responds 
by pointing everybody's attention to this future reality that in the future, he's going to be worshiped worldwide. And something's gonna change so that the worshipers are offering pure worship and it's not just Israel that's worshiping, but the whole world worshiping Israel's God. Now just look, remember what I told you last week, that Israel had been destroyed militarily, that you know, uh, the, the Babylonians came in and turned Jerusalem into a parking lot, including the temple. And they got shipped off to all different places. 70 years later, they came back. They were only about, a, you know, maybe a tenth came back. They were limited to this 20 by 25 square mile strip of land. It's all they had. And they were subjugated under this foreign power. Israel was down and out. They'd been humiliated. They had nothing going for them. And when you think of that, that's the, the, that's the situation when the prophet wrote this. That is the most, the idea that Israel's God would be worshipped worldwide was the most ridiculous idea that he could probably say. It's just, no way that would happen. Israel is about to just be crushed and go out of existence in its entirety. Or just to kind of fade into history as this little backwater, you know, nation with this little tribal deity and that Yahweh would go the way of Ra or Molech or Remnash or all the other gods that we don't even know. And yet I ask you, where is the temple of Molech in San Diego? Not here, unless you want to count Planned Parenthood, but that's a whole nother topic. Where's the temple to Ra, mighty Ra of the Egyptians? It's not here. And yes, that actually happened, right? We are here in San Diego, a bunch of Gentiles worshiping the tribal deity of this little backwater nation. Whatever, that actually happened. Worldwide, people are worshiping Israel's God. Uh, and so it's a, it was a ridiculous thing to say, but it actually happened. And it's a strange response until you remember what Malachi said last week. What did, he, what did we talk about last week? That our, the foundation of our relationship, the first thing that God said in this letter is not how much we need to love him, but the foundation of our relationship with God is his love for us. That he has chosen us. He is committed to us. He is committed to seeing us through and he is committed uh, his love is what is going to make us lovely. He's committed to us uh, no matter what. And so what did God do for people like Israel? What did God do for people like us who, you know, complain that God doesn't love us and then turn around and in the same breath defend our own pathetic worship is perfectly, perfectly good and right? God, in answer to that, sent the perfect worshiper into our midst. He sent Jesus. And Jesus not only loved being in his Father's presence in the temple or in the synagogues, he not only loved worshiping God alongside all the hypocrites and half-hearted worshipers of his day, uh, but his entire life was an act of worship. His entire life 
was, was literally saying to God, not my will, but your will be done. Putting aside all of his own needs, putting aside all of his own interests in favor of the will of God and doing it as an act of worship. And in that, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He was absolutely righteous. And when we believe in Jesus, that righteousness is given to us. That's a gift, right? Not that we're really righteous, but God sees us as righteous. Uh, and ultimately, that led to the greatest worship offering of all time, where Jesus, as our high priest, offered himself up as the perfect offering on the cross. The cross itself, you know, the Bible talks about the cross itself was an altar, and Jesus offered a sacrifice of himself on that offer, a perfect sinless offering to take away all, all of our sins. And what, so what does that mean with regards to this? You know, one, of the, one of the pillars of our faith is what? That what I just said. The, we call it the, uh, you know, the, the active obedience of Jesus. That Jesus didn't just uh, die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, but he gave us a real a righteousness. He gave us his righteousness. Uh, and so what does that mean? It means that God sees us through the lens of Jesus. He doesn't see our sins. He sees Jesus' perfection. Uh, and that's in everything, right? We usually, when I, when I think about that, when you think about that, you probably think of your favorite sins or the sins that you keep falling into or the sins that you struggle with and you think God doesn't see these sins uh, he sees Jesus' perfection through them. And that's true, but it's true for everything. Another pillar of our faith and a startling thing to think about is that we would, outside of Christ, we wouldn't be uh, condemned to hell just for the awful sins we commit. A crazy way of saying it is we would be condemned to hell for the very best thing we ever did. Why? Because even the very best acts, even our best works, even our most charitable gifts are still shot through with this kind of half-hearted, self-consumed, prideful, look at me, look at me, or whatever. We would be condemned for the, even the very best things we do. It's practically, what this means is that when we're here worshiping and you're looking at the clock or you're wondering if you're going to get home in time for the game, or you didn't even come today because it's such nice weather and the beach is there or whatever. And our, we, in our half-hearted, self-consumed worship, God doesn't even see that. He sees us through the lens of Jesus and our worship is then acceptable to God because of the righteousness of Christ. And that's good news, man. That's good news because that's the only way it could be. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, awesome, I'll watch the game and Jesus can go to church for me. That's what you just said, right? Because I'm covered, right? I'm totally covered. Not so fast. <laughs> the even better part is that the gospel, this, this understanding of this gospel begins to slowly create pure worship in us. It starts creating worship for the right reasons and for the right motives in our hearts. We start to worship and honor God for who he is and what he has done for us in a, in a truer way. Let, let me 
Let me, let me ex- illustrate it by talking about Private Ryan, the movie Private Ryan. I've used this illustration before, uh, but it's, so, it's a cultural artifact and it's so perfect. What happened at the uh, Private Ryan? Everybody hopefully has seen the movie. If you haven't, there's a guy named Private Ryan. He's way behind the enemy lines in World War II. All of his bro- he has several brothers. They all die. Uh, and so the army sends this special team of soldiers to penetrate through enemy lines and rescue Private Ryan and bring him back to safety so that his parents don't lose all their sons, right? And at the very end of the movie, they accomplish that. Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, has been shot up by a tank. Everybody who came to rescue him suffered over the entire course and then gave their lives to save Ryan, to rescue him. And his, as Captain Miller's all shot up. He's leaning up against the, the Jeep or whatever. He's bleeding out. And he pulls Ryan down. And his last words are, earn it. Earn it. Now, we all freak out when we hear that earn it because of our, all of our theological pre-commitments. We think that he's saying, you have to earn what we just did for you. That's not, but that's not what he's saying. Put that, put that aside. He's not saying, be a good man and we'll come and save you. That's already been done. What is he saying? He's saying, you've been saved at a costly sacrifice. And so offer thanks by being a good man, living a good life that honors the memory of the men who died for you. Now imagine, imagine you're Ryan in that situation, if this were a true story. And you realize that these, you know, five or six men had literally given their lives to save you and bring you back to safety for your parents. And you've watched them die. And that was their last request. How would you, what would you do with that? Would you try to honor that request? Maybe some of you have someone like that in your life who like literally gave themselves for you and for your benefit. Maybe you even have, have someone who literally like gave their life for you that you know or, or, or a situation like that. When that request comes, if, you, if that was me, I feel like I would do everything in my power to honor Miller and what those men did for me for the rest of my life. I would do everything to honor them. And at the end of the movie, at the, at the end of the movie or beginning of the movie, end of the movie, we see Ryan come to the grave of Captain Miller and he just starts bawling. He's got his wife and his kids and his grandkids. He starts bawling, saying, telling me I've been a good man. He, what he's saying is, you know, did I, did I honor them for what they did to me? Did I give them the honor that they deserved? And look, our reality is way more than that. We weren't just saved from, you know, Nazi Germany. We were saved from the ultimate reality of sin and death and hell that had its claws in us, and we were unable, unable to escape from that. The only solution, the only possible solution was that God himself, the the Son of God, would come and come and rescue us and pull us out of that and give us a new life, give us eternal life, and give us an inheritance in a new world that's we can't even imagine how, how beautiful it will be. How much more should that, or does that, when we really focus on that, how much more does that empower us to love God? How much more does it empower us 
to say, I, I, will do, I will honor you with my life. So that when those, you know, when those in, internal desires that are destructive come up, we decide to honor God instead of following our desires. We put Jesus as the center. God says, you have been saved. Therefore, honor me with your life. That's, that's the Christian life. In our bodies, in our minds, with our money, with our time, with our talents, with everything. And then the surprising thing that happens at the end, and I'll conclude with this, is that you know, we start doing that out of a sense of obligation. Maybe you start doing it out of a sense of gratitude. Uh, but it doesn't take long before we start to realize that what God asks us to do is actually life-giving and joy-producing. God will not be a debtor to his people. As we begin, we may begin doing it because we have to. We might be then move to we should do it. Uh, but it pretty quickly moves into we want to and then we get to because we see that what God is calling us to, the life he's calling us to live by putting him in the center and by focusing on being filled with his spirit produces the joy and the freedom and the satisfaction that we were trying to get from other things but never did. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. Lord, this is by faith. I mean, you have given us plenty of, given us plenty of evidence, Lord, to know that you are real and to know that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did what he said he did, to know that this is true. And yet it's easier to honor someone who saves you from a hail of bullets or a car accident or something physical like that because we can see it. And yet we can't see you. We can't see what you've done. We've only heard about it. But your spirit, you promised that by your spirit you impress these things on us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the eyes of faith, to see what it was you actually did for us so that we would have, we would, so your spirit would work it in through us and we would desire to honor you, Lord. Change us from the inside out so that we would love you. Um, and so that in that we would be lights in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.